Ja, I have, uh, <laughs> never mind. We're not doing German. <laughs> I can't do German. Okay, yeah, we have, no, not we, it's just me. Wait, there's nobody peeking through the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the Yeti. <laughs> no, there's no Yeti. Uh, he, he's big and he's horny, but he's not a Yeti. <laughs> he does have a beard, though. Yes, a beard for sure. Okay. So, I've examined your case, and... It seems to me that your smoking habit, you know, those Virginia Slim menthols, have made you develop a sexual attraction to your smoking bearded old man neighbor who looks kind of like your therapist. Mm, I don't think so. There can be no smoke without fire. You're fired. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I mean, and people still talk about this in like 1984 as if, yes, Freud is a big deal. We have to talk about our Freud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't, we can't do this without the Freud situation. Oh, by the way, you remember yesterday when I took Cody to the dog park and um, it was cold, whatever, and I was bundled up. So I opened the door to the car and I got a cramp in my arm from opening the door to the car. <laughs> which which means obviously I can you imagine like how out of shape I am if I got a cramp from opening the car door yeah the America it like it, it seeps into your bones you know you can't escape you're it's, you're breathing it in the air no 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 so. I, I'm gonna correct the situation because I got <laughs> I was mortified I thought like, what the hell like how how is this possible it's just the only people who are not the same way in america are people who are so inoperable terminal horny that they go to the gym every day <laughs> <laughs> i mean i would say i would characterize those people as the healthy ones that don't get cramps when they're not in the car. they're not in the gym because they're worried about being healthy they're in the gym because they are horny period <laughs> <laughs> is that the freud analysis exactly take on it? <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it is and uh nobody's going to convince me any see this is i mean <laughs> this is basically the crux of our entire uh project here yes freud may be a dip but then again, I don't know. You got some points. Okay, fine. So tell us, Neil, about Marilyn Monroe. Today we're talking about specifically her death and her mistreatment at the hands of all of her psychiatrists. A bit of a heads up. On today's episode, we are going to talk about some difficult topics like suicide, suicidal ideation, and mental illness. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This is bigger than, it's bigger than one person, but she's a, I don't know, she's at the center of it. Uh, there are still people 50 years later selling her persona and her image and making their living from it long after the profession they started with has 
kind of fallen by the wayside and is not profitable anymore. There are still people making their living from the the imaginary image of Marilyn Monroe all these years later. Yeah, it's she became a product in a sense, you know. So her story is inseparable from the Freuds. Uh, so much of the culture that was built around her in the post-World War II film industry was directly from her. If nothing else, people that took the money that she didn't get from her own persona while she was alive, the people who profited from it after her death built the entire American film industry from the money that should have gone to Marilyn Monroe. And really, if you look back on it that way, you know, she is the beginning of the post-World War II, you know, American film industry, which is really, at the end of the day, the only art form that America has. Yeah, I mean, her films grossed over $200 million back then, and that would be about $2 billion in 2020. She got very little of it, very little of it. In fact, from what I saw in the pictures of her home, she lived a very frugal life. You know, we all imagine, again, this is the image they projected, right? Like really fabulous, glamorous lifestyle. Yeah, she was glamorous, she was fabulous, she had jewelry, she had some furs, she had, you know, nice clothing, of course, nice dresses and all that stuff. But her home was really, really modestly furnished. Uh, there was nothing extravagant in there. In fact, to be honest, I think most of us have more furniture in our living room than she had. She was, I think, more obsessed with her work than spending any of the money from it. It seems like she wanted to legitimize herself, despite the people that were insisting that she be less than she wanted to be. Exactly, because one of the things that really bothered her was the fact that she was not casted in those roles that she was interested in, that would present her to the public as the actress and artist that she truly was, not just the sexy, blonde chick. Yeah, and from the perspective and the comments of these people that were around her, for instance, her acting coach, the Strasbergs, and you know her therapists and psychiatrists and people like that, they were building their idea for what they wanted to build from you know the money that they were getting from Marilyn Monroe, yeah, the school that they built was on a fundamental level incompatible with Marilyn Monroe. Their idea of how to teach somebody to project an emotion into a camera was to draw on their own life experiences. And in her case, her entire upbringing uh, was a complete mess through no fault of her own. So if there was anybody who could not draw on their upbringing to, you know, project a happy emotion into a camera, it's Marilyn Monroe. So ironically, she paid for a thing that she could never be a part of. Yeah, that is true. I have a literature degree. That's my formal education. And I guarantee you, every person in a literature department uh, whether they fancy themselves a novelist or not, you're going to read some Freud. Even in 2021, you're going to read some Freud. And 
the yeah, you know, as we mentioned before, the Freuds are really inseparable from this story. They're a core part of it. And so the way that it was taught to me in my undergrad theory and criticism, as I remember it, uh, shout out to uh, Professor Marshall Armentor, who did a very good job of teaching this to a bunch of very terrified 18-year-olds and me, the odd person in the middle of my 30s. Um, there were three inventions at the end of the 19th century that were groundbreaking scientific discoveries uh, that changed not just engineering and science, but culture and people's society, yeah, society as a whole. So number one, you have the invention of the X-ray. Uh, you no longer have to cut somebody open to see if they have a broken bone and risk, you know, an infection that causes them to die. This revolutionizes medicine and makes it you know, much more safe to treat uh, minor injuries without risk of death. Number two, the invention of the movie camera, the film camera. Prior to the invention of a moving picture camera, I mean, think about this. It was impossible for you to know what a battle looked like in a war, what it looked like um, in Paris if you'd never been to Paris, what it looked like in London if you'd never been to London, what it looked like. Well, they did have photographs, Neil. They had photographs, <laughs> yes, but a photograph does not show the you. The dynamic, the movement, the intensity. Exactly. Yes. Yes, I agree. You cannot you cannot see into the future or into the past. In other words, the movie camera allows you to see events that happened in the past. So even if you weren't there, that is a groundbreaking thing. And number three, um, which has been minimized, I think, a bit since then, is psychoanalysis. And Freud is the inventor of this. So the movie camera allows you to see events that happened in the past, even if you weren't there. The x-ray allows you to see inside the human body without cutting it open. Psychoanalysis allows you to see inside the human mind and to see why people are the people they are and why they do what they do, supposedly. So these three things were... Inventions that were going to propel humanity forward at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, about the movie camera, you make a good point because, you know, I said photographs. Yeah, sure. But like, what if, if you're filming a movie with a plot, then the action was happening in the Middle Ages, right? There were no cameras then. So yeah, movies definitely offer you an insight into events that happened way before humans had the technology to record them in any way. And about Freud and psychoanalysis, yeah, massive breakthrough, just like the X-ray. It's just that it's a little bit more complicated because unlike an X-ray, psychoanalysis, depending on the psychoanalyst, you know, it can not, it doesn't always show what is happening. It can be interpreted in the wrong ways and then a wrong treatment can be administered. Exactly. You're yes. It's, and it's a little more. It's a little bit more complicated. An X-ray is like a simple, straightforward uh, medical uh, breakthrough, and you know it shows you if a bone is broken or not. It shows you if tumors are there or not, or some other medical 
facts that are very clear and you can identify them on the x-ray and right, they're, and they're right. you know very hard to like misinterpret a broken arm right a broken bone but with psychoanalysis we go into a field that it's so much more complicated complex and very very subjective and it all depends on yes. the psychoanal uh, psychoanalysts view and how he interprets things and then we can have results that can be great and medical treatment helps the patients but then we have sadly a really all of which is to say that it's bs yes it is <laughs> that's well, fine <laughs> i completely agree that's the point so we're not saying psychoanalysis no like it's it's a great breakthrough and you know mental health is important and if people have issues they should go definitely see a therapist most people are going to see psychologists though not psychiatrists you know that's that's a major difference psychiatrists treat more serious conditions psychologists are for people generally for you know mild depression stuff like that nothing major if we're talking schizophrenia and other more serious issues that's when psychiatrists generally get involved i mean let's be honest we're talking about a particular method this is what they saw themselves it was a method uh, that is not really been used all that much since the 70s uh, for its intended purpose. You know, it's, that's fine. I mean, it, and it's not the only one of those, you know, three grand inventions. I mean, one of, it's a bit of a tangent, but one of the first um, sort of grand scale ideas for the movie camera, as I mentioned in introducing all of this, is naturally you want to go take a, a camera and film a war. So somebody did that, and it turns out the war was relatively boring when filmed. So, <laughs> so they had to go after the fact. They had to go after the fact, and we're gonna like we're gonna dig some holes and say that and say that a bomb went off here, and we're gonna drag some dead bodies onto the road to make it look like it's a little more, uh, you know, a little more violent than it really was. Yeah, because... give it some spice. Give it some spice. Drop some dead bodies in the middle of the road. Yeah, or, you yeah. gotta get. I mean, we gotta get some blood over here because that sadly, helps. I mean, yeah, blood is always a good thing. Yes. So that was, you know, the film, uh, let's say the film industry had its own hiccups as well. Yeah, but you know, I like, that's the thing. Like, okay, maybe they, you know, you can manipulate anything with a movie, in a, in a moving image, whatever. But most of the times that won't get anybody killed. Or in a, you know, I mean, that's the difference with psychoanalysis. It's psychoanalysis, unlike movies, it's somehow so much more complicated and it can go wrong. That's the point. Like with movies, I mean, you can only go so wrong and people generally won't kill themselves after watching a movie, you know, depending on what movie they watch. We're going to try to explain this in as, as simple a, because I, I mean, there's a, there's a century of writing you can go through to, research the the history of psychoanalysis and its its influence on literature and film and everything else so we're going to do our best here to uh to condense this into a one-hour podcast which in itself is a pretty sketchy proposition we may need to uh you know get the blood mops out and put some squibs with some ketchup in after we're done here too to kind of spice this up a little bit because you know it's tough to squeeze it all into an hour <laughs> I, we, don't, 
We don't have to though. That's the thing. Like we don't have to squeeze it. We can let it <laughs> stop squeezing. No, not not like squeeze. We... Squib. A squib is the thing filled with fake blood when you get shot in a movie. I don't know what you're talking about. Like you, <laughs> you completely <laughs> lost me. I'm, I'm lost here. Okay, if you're know. not Alec Baldwin and you got a, a gun with some fake bullets, you're gonna shoot somebody with a gun, and when you shoot. It needs to. There needs. There's got to be some blood to show the audience that oh, that okay. guy, get, yeah, that yeah, that yeah, guy got the, shot. Yeah. So they have these little like exploding ketchup packets. They're called squibs. Okay, what does that have to do with our podcast? Like, can we just get back on track to the little <laughs> to the subject? Like, <laughs> well, anyways, squibs are important. Merlin grew up in orphanages and with several foster care families. And that happened because her mother was institutionalized for most of her life. Her father had left her mother. Merlin never met him, which is one of the main reasons why she kept looking for a father figure in her life throughout her entire life. And this is also why she was dating men that were older and like powerful men, men that she could associate with the father she never had. So daddy issues in a nutshell. She was sexually abused when she was 11 years old, and it happened more than once throughout her teen years. She first got married at 16 years old. This marriage was an arranged marriage by one of her foster families who was moving out of state, and because Merlin's mother never gave up custody, they could not take her with them and cross state lines. About her first marriage, she says the following. My marriage didn't make me sad, but it didn't make me happy either. My husband and I hardly spoke to each other. This wasn't because we were angry. We had nothing to say. I was dying of boredom. You know, her eventual acting career and the um, the ideas of how you create actors and actresses uh, from her uh, her teacher in that regard was, again, that you... You know, you explain to these uh, these people that when you're in front of a camera and you need to uh, conjure an emotion, you need to look back on your own childhood. And this is straight out of the Freud handbook. You know, the vast majority of Freud's theories were around the idea that your childhood experiences shaped your subconscious mind, which would in turn affect your behavior throughout your life thereafter. So imagine being Marilyn Monroe and being told, okay, you need to be happy in front of a camera. Think about a happy time from your childhood. And it's like, There's no, are you kidding yeah. me? Is this the... Is this the time that I was abandoned at an orphanage, or is this the time that my dad disappeared and I never saw him again? Which one of those is more happy to you? Yeah, I mean, her entire life up to the the time she became relatively famous was a, a series of really sad events. And this is the thing. I mean, as if it wasn't enough that they had been through that trauma once, they had to relive it over and over again. Yeah, this is a very, uh, it's very... It's a very enlightenment liberal uh, ideology, really, that you can pop somebody's skull open with your new, uh, you know, third tool of the scientific age and say, look, here's what's wrong with your brain. And the assumption is, is the patient would look at that and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I need to go home and fix my brain. So I'll go do that by myself. No. Yeah. 
don't leave it all to the patients. You know, you have to help them and give them the tools to be able to get past that trauma. Don't just throw them in the middle of the trauma again, make them relieve it again and again and again, and then expect them to get better. It's It just won't happen. You know, to clarify, before we're too hard, it's not how you're going to be treated if you go see a therapist in 2021, but that doesn't mean it has no merit. Uh, if you want to be a novelist and you, you know, get a master of fine arts from some university, like I said, you're going to read some Freud because if you want to, uh, create fictional characters as if you were a movie star, as if you were a novelist, um, Freud's still very relevant there. It's still the best way. You're creating a stereotypical person with stereotypical issues in their mind and you have to in a subtle way without explaining it, transfer that image you've created of a stereotypical person to an audience. Freud's still very relevant in that. So it's not like this stuff is completely without merit. It's just not for its intended purpose, I guess we should say. Yes. And also, I think it's fair to say that Marilyn always feared that she would end up like her grandmother and mother. Both of them were hospitalized for mental illness throughout their lives. And there were suicides in her family as well. Her her grandfather hanged himself in 1933. And really, she dreamed of having the happy family life she never experienced as a child. Yeah, this is, I suppose, the more direct intersection of Marilyn's downward spiral and the psychoanalysis industry. Is at one point she was actually, you know, treated by a therapist that had her come over to his house and sit and have dinner with his wife and kids. It was as if they thought, we'll just put her into a pretend role as a suburban housewife and she will magically become that stereotypical person. It was very, it was very surreal. Very surreal. And also at the time, it was very wrong. But we'll get to Dr. Greenson in a bit. <laughs> and, you know, in fairness to him, he would, uh, we would probably spend more time on his, uh, on his colleague, Mr. Bernays, if he weren't helping the CIA overthrow Latin American governments for United Fruit at the time. He had prior engagements. So, <laughs> you know, the Freuds, the Freuds were a busy family. The Freuds were busy. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I think, I think at some point we're going to have an episode on Bernays but we'll get there. Before we move on, I want to tell our listeners that we just uploaded a really interesting premium episode about Putin's time in East Germany as a young KGB officer, his work with the Stasi, his connection to terrorist groups, and Carlos the Jackal, and lots of cool stuff in there, uh, including a doorknob poisoning, <laughs> very KGB style, very KGB style. So if you're looking for something more fun, you should check out our Fraud Influencers episode. In the Fraud Influencers episode, you can hear about the fake Arab prince, Botox camels, and the swindler pilot who wanted to be an influencer. And both of these guys got caught mostly because of their social media accounts. And the Putin episode will have a part two again, only for our premium subscribers. So guys, if you're not a premium subscriber yet and you want to support us and hear more of us by getting two extra episodes a month, please subscribe on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. We don't use Patreon, so the signing up subscription process is the easiest in the world. So dubiouspod.com, click subscribe and enjoy the premium episodes. Between 1955 and her death in 62, Marilyn Monroe was treated by five different psychoanalysts. 
one of whom was none other than Anna Freud, daughter of Sigmund Freud. And Anna Freud described Marilyn as emotionally unstable, highly impulsive, and needing continuous approval from the outside world. She cannot bear solitude and tends to get depressed when faced with rejection, paranoid with schizophrenic elements. I don't know if how much her diagnosis can be trusted because uh, Mabby Burlingham was another of Anna Freud's patients and she was experiencing similar issues as, as Marilyn and she took an overdose in Freud's home and died while in the care of Anna Freud. Yeah, you, you take these diagnoses from the Freuds with a grain of salt. You know, okay, this is what her therapist said. And at the same time, uh, since they've been published, you can go back and read her diary notes and things like that and see what she thought of you know, herself at the time. And the impression that you get from reading her diary and reading her therapist's notes um, side by side is, I don't think the therapist was entirely uh, hitting the bullseye with the uh, the diagnosis. Um, because in Marilyn's diary, she seems you know, quite aware and sane of what's, you know, in terms of what's going on. Yes, and to diagnose her with schizophrenic elements, like, I, I feel that's a step way too far because we kind of know she was bipolar. From, I mean, you know, what we, from what we know now, that was what she was suffering from. Yeah, I think the way that Anna and other, you know, Freuds that were involved in 20th century things, they were past the old man's idea that this was theoretical for a scientific audience. They thought that their theories should be applied and should have measurable impacts on people. And in a lot of ways, you know, the people who were subjected to the famous psychoanalysts of the 20th century were kind of the guinea pigs in this experiment of how do you reshape somebody's mind? And also psychoanalysis is not an x-ray. I think that's the gist of it. It also, the same methods that might work for a patient might not work for another patient. There's no right or wrong. It's just a very subjective way of, you know, of treatment. Yes, exactly. Dep it's not... It's all in the hands of the psychoanalyst. It's so. not right or wrong. It's just another thing. It is. You take what you want to take from it. You know, that's, uh, that's where we're at. In 1961, Dr. Ralph Greenson is Marilyn's main therapist. As uh, as we said earlier, she had about five therapists in the years before she died at the same time. So not five different therapists at different times, kind of like almost at the same time because she was filming in different locations. So for example, if she was filming in New York, uh, her doctor there was Dr. Marianne Kreese. So it depends on when, where she is physically. And Marianne Chris convinced Marilyn to voluntarily admit herself into a mental care facility. By this point, she was a true star. She was worldwide, the worldwide American icon. She was famous. Now, what led to this pivotal moment of her checking in this mental care facility? I think this is, in my opinion, the beginning of the end for Marilyn. Yeah. This is where things started going really, really wrong. Marilyn Monroe was married at the time to Arthur Miller, uh, death of a salesman. We all read it, we all know who Arthur Miller was. Yeah. Biggest, Amer biggest American playwright. But their relationship unraveled while they were working together uh, on what would be her last film, The Misfits. The movie script was based on a short story by Miller, and it was initially intended to help her be seen as a serious actress, which is what she wanted. But by the time the film was shooting in the summer of 1960, she wasn't thrilled about the script at all. 
Uh, she said, Arthur said it's his movie. I don't think he even wants me in it. It's all over. We have to stay with each other because it would be bad for the film if we split up now. So her marriage is unraveling. The movie project she had put so much hope in to present her to the world as a more, as a deeper, uh, more complex actress is not turning out as she wanted it to. So things are already going bad. She's the most famous uh, adherent to the school that her acting coach is putting together. Uh, and he is putting together a school using a method of teaching people how to act that she cannot possibly adhere to because it's asking her to relive the trauma of her childhood. So she is bound to something that she can't possibly be a part of. And this is not really anybody's fault, but let's add fuel to that fire that now she's also got herself into this film that was supposed to change the trajectory of her career and make her a more serious actor than just, you know, the pretty blonde. Well, that's not going well either because her husband is not really interested in her anymore. He's flirting with another girl on the set. And she's been told in as many words, don't worry about this movie. We got it. You know, just go sit over there in the corner and be pretty. We got this taken care of. So she's also being told in a roundabout way that you can't be what you want to be in addition to you can't do what you, the person who taught you is teaching other people to do. So she's being excluded systematically one by one from every aspect of her own life. That is somewhat surreal. Yeah, And what's most hurtful, I think it's this comes from a man she loves, you know what I mean? Her husband, like he's the one who was supposed to deliver that script in such a way that would portray her to the world as the really good, serious actress she was. And that all flopped. Yeah. And instead of that, they told her, oh, go go eat dinner with your therapist and his kids and that'll make you want to be a good housewife. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and the shoot was made harder for her because Miller kept re rewriting the script and her ongoing substance abuse was also something that made uh, shooting this movie difficult because to cope with everything we discussed so far, what does one do? You know what I mean? What I mean, she probably at this point was already, um, you know, addicted to some of, pres of the prescription medication she was getting. And due to these issues, she was hospitalized for a week in Los Angeles while they were filming The Misfits because she was so out of it, which I mean, honestly, I completely understand. And anybody putting themselves in her shoes at this point, how do you cope with all of that? I mean, it's either alcohol. Yeah. What do you do when everybody around you is, you know, without telling you, just you they're all failing you in one way or another and including your psychiatrist right imagine everybody thinking that you are famous and happy all the time and all you see is everybody you know is either on purpose or subconsciously betraying you every single day exactly so her marriage to arthur miller is pretty much done at this point their plans to divorce were announced on november 11 1960 a date chosen in the hopes that john f kennedy's inauguration would distract from media attention she didn't want to make a big deal out of this divorce on january 31st 1961 the misfits premiered 
but the reviews were far from glowing. She wanted this movie to be successful, but the critics' reactions hit her hard, especially since they didn't seem to grasp the concept that she can really act and create a deeper character. Some comments went so far as to attack her physical appearance, implying that she gained weight and she looked bad. And her co-star, Clark Gable, whom she truly, truly admired and looked up to, died of a heart attack. Merlin saw Clark Gable as a father, and she said so publicly. In this interview, she's alluding to Freud's psychoanalysis and points out that, I quote, I never pretended anyone was my mother. I don't know why. Well, that is because her mother, even though institutionalized for most of Merlin's life, was still present in her life somehow. Merlin knew her, she saw her, she knew who she was. She even provided and cared for her mom when she became um, too ill and Merlin was financially successful. And, you know... Um look at all this stuff and you know the the recurring thing i kind of alluded to it earlier you know it seems like marilyn wants somebody to help her get to where she wants to go but at the end of the day whether consciously or subconsciously you know very freudian way of looking at this uh all these people she's involved with or in whatever they're doing for themselves i mean lee strasberg is building a school for himself you know all these therapists that are associated with anna freud are ultimately in what they're doing for themselves you know yeah she's a collateral victim so to speak in all these people's lives trajectories pretty much this is all a very comical if it weren't tragic display of what happens when everybody's looking out for number one yes and also regarding this interview that we talked about and her mother, you know, in contrast, Merlin never knew her dad, never really saw him or talked to him. So he had no image to associate with him. Hence the Clark Gable father figure construct in her mind. And that's why she loved him so much. All of these traumatic events caused her to fall into a severe depression with suicidal tendencies and an escalating dependency on barbiturates. Now, what happens is that during a therapy session, Marilyn shares that she wanted to jump out of the window of her Manhattan apartment. She's married to Arthur Miller, and Arthur Miller ultimately sort of betrays her idea of how she's going to uh, further her acting career. It is very ironic because Death of a Salesman is literally about that. Not an acting career, but yeah, bear yeah. with me. The plot of Death of a Salesman is kind of an older, kind of washed up guy who's being outcast from his job because he's not as good at it as he used to be. And the industry's changed and there's just no room for him anymore. And he doesn't make enough money to provide for his family. And then there's all the psychological issues that causes between him and his sons and his wife. That's the story, you know, and this is Arthur Miller's grand accomplishment, and he's living it. This whole dynamic with him and this movie he's written is not very good, and Marilyn Monroe, it's, I mean, it's the whole thing, you know, writ large into real life. You know, this is a story within a story. So at this time, Merlin was attending psychoanalysis sessions with Dr. Chris very, very often, like 47 times in two months, according to records. And these sessions, again, were focused on exploring her childhood traumas. At the same time, she's taking the acting lessons in the afternoons after every therapy session. And exact same she's thing. Revisi- 
Yes, yes. So basically, her daily routine is waking up, going to therapy sessions where she's being re-traumatized and then going to acting classes and being re-traumatized again. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane. I know, I know. That's why we basically decided the psychoanalysis angle on this is so important. Now, in a nutshell, when you add all of it up, the bipolar episodes, the sleep deprivation from mania, uh, the many medications she took, the constant reliving of childhood trauma, the acting lessons and more trauma, the divorce, her third one, the misfits not being what she wanted. These things combined could not have possibly led to anything else than a psychological disaster, in my opinion. Yeah. And then, you know, as if all that is not enough. Uh, She is basically sexually assaulted by one of the staff doctors in the hospital. He tells her that she needs a breast cancer exam in her cell in the hospital she has committed herself to. From the, the story about it I read, she politely initially said, no, that's okay. I mean, I had a exam with my gynecologist a couple of months ago. I'm fine. But he insisted. And this, this you, can is ex- insane. you can explain this away as somebody who's bipolar and having an episode. But no, 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 no. I would no, have. I would, a- no, you, you don't want to know the episode I would have. And honestly, this is, again, one of those situations where medical professionals in her life just let her down. And not only that, that is a... a, a of the finest example of malpraxis. Like, you're not gonna do mammograms on patients in mental institutions. That's not why you're there. You know what I mean? Like, that's this is insane. Yeah, this is what brings this situation to a head. Is so she has naturally, you, I mean, anybody I think would have just a complete meltdown when they get treated that way by a doctor in some in a hospital they've committed themselves to. Dr. Chris did not prepare Merlin for what she would experience at the Payne Whitney Mental Hospital. So when she arrived there on her own volition, Merlin was taken to a cement block room on the sixth floor. Severely disturbed and depressed patients were residing there. There were still bars covering all the windows, and she could hear terrifying screams from the other patients the whole time she was there. I'm asking a question here as much as commenting on this. Do you think that this charade with committing yourself to this hospital and being put in, like, you know, cinder block rooms, padded rooms, whatever, do you think part of that was another psychoanalytical sort of experiment experiment is like if you don't fix your brain this is where you're gonna wind up i i mean i don't know what to say i I do think dr chris was well intended i i think this was i mean merlin did need inpatient treatment at this point yeah because she was suicidal and left alone in her home she could have gone ahead and killed herself here's the thing uh if you have enough money that you can support lee strasberg's acting school in New York, you have enough money to pay for medical staff to sit with you at home. You don't need to be institutionalized. That is a good point. That's actually a very good point. It's all very BS on the surface level to me. And it, you know, also when you read back on, you know, again, the article I read on this, uh, her own account, uh, taken from her own diary of, you know, how this kind of played out in the hospital was... You know, after the incident with her basically being 
you know, assaulted by the doctor and then confined to this room and then, you know, telling these people, uh, you know what, I've changed my mind. I'm not doing this. I want out of here. And then they refused to let her leave. Her explanation of what happened was, if these people want crazy, I'll give them crazy. Yes. Because they're driving me to this. That was her. And it sounded very reasonable to me. Yep. Yep. Now, think about it. Ever since she was a very young child, Marilyn feared, this was one of her main phobias in her life, that she feared that she will become like her grandmother and mother. So no wonder she was at this point panicking and terrified when she found herself locked in like a prison. Yes. This is what I'm saying. This was unnecessary. I mean, everybody would be upset. First of all, she voluntarily admitted herself in there. So at some point, if I'm voluntarily admitting myself, I, I, I'm I expecting to be let you know, out. In fairness to the conspiracy theories, uh, these, I mean, this whole situation has got to be where some of it comes from. Because, you know, while you're trying to do what you do for a living, you have to relive all your childhood trauma. Then you go see your therapist who, guess what, also wants you to relive all your childhood trauma. And then, as if all that's not enough, when it drives you to rock bottom, the one thing you are truly afraid of, oh, by the way, your therapist told you to go volunteer yourself for the one thing that you are really afraid of. So that yeah, is, this, yeah. I mean, is it too much of a stretch to suspect that, you know what, all these people are just trying to get rid of this woman so they can hurry up and spend her estate. I mean, I agree. As a psychiatrist, Dr. Chris should have kind of like seen this is not a good idea. Not in this way. Yeah, she needed inpatient treatment, but it could have done many, could have been done in a different way. As with so many other problems in the early to mid 20th century, the solution to this problem was an Italian guy with a baseball bat. She called Joe DiMaggio on February 9th. Now, DiMaggio showed up at the hospital the next morning and raised hell. Uh, <laughs> he told them that they won't, if they don't release Merlin, he's going to take the hospital uh, apart brick by brick. And finally, the next day, um, he sends Dr. Chris and uh, her massage, th massage therapist, Ralph Roberts, to pick her up. And according to Roberts, as soon as the car pulled out of the hospital parking lot, Merlin started screaming at Dr. Chris. And he described the scene as a quote-unquote, hurricane unleashed. I'm surprised, honestly, I'm surprised she didn't drop Dr. Chris right there. I, would I was going to say, I was surprised they were in the car together. Exactly. Yeah, and in her case, I, I don't know if any human, like, with her background and the trauma she's been living through, I, she had been living through, I don't know if anybody could fix anything at that point. It's just too much, and you can't do it without help. And she had the help she was counting on never arrived, to be honest. In a letter she later wrote to Dr. Ralph Greenson about her stay at the first hospital, she says, quote, There was no empathy at Payne Whitney. It had a very bad effect. They asked me after putting me in a cell, I mean cement blocks and all, for very disturbed, depressed patients, except I felt I was in some kind of prison for a crime I hadn't committed. The inhumanity there I found archaic. Everything was under lock and key. The doors have windows so patients can be visible all the time. I picked up a lightweight chair and slammed it against the glass intentionally. It took a lot of banging to get even a small piece of glass, so I went over with the glass concealed in my hand and sat quietly on the bed waiting for them to come in. 
They did, and I said to them, if you are going to treat me like a nut, I lacked like a nut. I mean, this particular account of hers, I think it's why you had to take all of these, you know, all these suggestions that all these doctors had her best interest at heart with a big grain of salt. I don't think her own account of her time in the hospital sounds like she was crazy. I think she no. was in a crazy place. To be honest, if anybody is mentally stable in this whole situation, it's her. Any normal person would have reacted the same way. First of all, she gets sexually abused almost by that quote-unquote doctor there who yeah. shouldn't even be, you know... Yeah. I mean, the lines that were crossed just with that and then being restrained and having people coming in and out watching her as if she's some kind of circus animal, this is ridiculous. The one person who didn't have anything to gain here was her one true fan, friend, really, in all of it. Um, you know, the Strasbergs are starting their acting school and all these psychotherapists or psychoanalysts are associated with the Freuds and the Freuds have a big interest in legitimizing, you know, their own theories. So they have their own interest in all that. The only person who's not getting anything out of Marilyn Monroe is Joe DiMaggio. And he's the only person who was really her friend in all of this. And I don't think it a coincidence is like, again, it's because... He didn't need money and he didn't need her fame because he was just as famous as she was. So he was her only friend, I think, during this entire ordeal. Exactly. And that's why he was probably the only person that truly cared for her and was there for her at this point. She still, she still has a lot of issues. And then there's Dr. Ralph Greenson, whom I have a lot of things to say about. The Greenson ordeal, I mean, we both... I saw when we got into doing this episode, this was actually mentioned in a completely different you know, documentary by Adam Curtis from the BBC about the 20th century and the Freuds. And the best idea that uh, this last psychoanalyst has to try to help Marilyn Monroe is basically to throw her in a prison in his house in the suburbs instead of a mental hospital prison. I mean, it's it's really surreal. Yeah, I mean, about Dr. Ralph Greenson, I don't even know where to start. Let me just say this. From what I've read, it started really well. In the beginning, Dr. Greenson identified her issues correctly. He told her that she's building a tolerance to all these various meds that she was on and that it's best to have a single doctor prescribing her medications instead of five or six. So, so far... Nothing to complain about. But then he starts to have what it's called unchecked counter-transference with his patient, meaning he was projecting his own problems onto her and he almost became an overprotective parent, parent to Marilyn, increasing her dependence on him instead of helping her build herself up and be independent. And she even bought a house that looked like his. So th this just shows you that something's wrong here from the get-go. As the Adam Curtis documentary pointed out, and their mention of this, you know, string of events in the uh, in the documentary about the Freuds in the 20th century, this doctor has got Marilyn Monroe living in his house and sitting and eating dinner with his kids as if she's his wife. You can apply some subconscious uh, analysis to that whole situation there as well. So, I mean, it strikes me as relevant, and it seems to me like the last one may have been, you know, doing a little projecting of his own, imagining Marilyn Monroe as his wife in the suburbs in Beverly Hills. Which is honestly 
so disturbing on so many levels and it's not even that it's it's it what it did i think was for her in a quote-unquote perfect environment like a perfect family scene that she could never have because she had so many miscarriages she could not she almost died trying to have a child um she was at this point uh divorced three times uh, her career was not doing amazing it was back on track but she was not well and putting her and showing her this amazing family he had that she could never have i don't think really helped her in fact i think it might have just highlighted the the hole she felt like in her heart for not having a happy family uh, probably i mean at best at worst it's you know at best it's yeah look at uh yeah, you know, look at how you have failed. This is everything you don't have. Uh, at worst, it's just a completely foreign and surreal situation there because she probably, I mean, she didn't have any experience like this growing up. Uh, she doesn't have much of it in her adult life because, you know, all of her marriages were pretty short-lived. It's not an example of the arrogance of you know, this this entire sort of ideology of convincing people that if they just see the stereotype they're supposed to be, they'll think, oh, that's nice. I'll just go be the happy housewife. No, it's not that simple. Yeah. And it's not only that. I think at this point, it's there are lines that are not supposed to be crossed between a medical provider, a medical professional and a patient. Right. And it's not her fault. It's his fault as the responsibility is on Dr. Greenson here. Let's consider this and give this doctor the benefit of the doubt for a second. Even if you give him the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, this is what he was up to, trying to convince Marilyn Monroe that if she saw the happy suburban house, then she would want to be like that and go find it and do it herself. That's not, no, because the idea that people have to you know, conceptually consider their own existence and figure the world out for themselves. That was not invented by Sigmund Freud and, you know, any other psychoanalyst in the 20th century either. That goes all the way back to John Milton in 17th century England. All right. So that was his whole thing was that everybody had to you know, read their Bibles and figure out their personal philosophy themselves. So it's at least as old as that. We're talking about, you know, 300 years at this point. So the notion yeah. that, you know, you can do that in the 20th century and just convince people to change their own minds and rationally determine their own, you know, perfect uh, American lives is part of that sort of idea that originates with Milton. But this is not that. This is him trying to hold her prisoner in his house to convince her to, what, act as an actress like, like she's his wife? Eh, sorry, buddy. That's what I'm saying. It gets really murky and really muddy here. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, you are far from John Milton's ideal, my friend. And you are far from him because you are horny for Marilyn Monroe. Exactly. That's that's what I was going to get to. I mean, as I said, I'm going to play the devil advocate and say that Greenson was trying to provide her with the family life she had missed, with the stability, you know, and normality that her current stardom 
undermined, but you don't mix your own private life with your patient's private life. That's a line that should never be crossed. In all fairness, to me, it seems that Greenson fell in love with her. It's just what yeah. it is. That's the only thing that makes sense, really, is he's he's not trying to convince her to act uh, like she's an actress playing his wife for her. He's doing that for him because he knows that this woman has daddy issues. And if I convince her that, you know, I'm dad looking after her in my house, then uh, yeah. that takes care of that takes care of me, not her. Exactly. And I, I honestly, I can't find too many arguments in his defense because he even chose her housekeeper, a woman called Eunice Murray, whom he knew and who kept a close watch on Merlin, reporting everything back to Greenson. So <laughs> Eunice Murray was, I mean, that was, she was his eyes and ears while he was not there, which by the way, uh, he was there a lot of the time. And when he was not there, they would have several phone calls a day. I wonder if the housekeeper was in the CIA. Oh, my God, Neil. <laughs> uh, she didn't. I, 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 I'm not even going to go there. So Greenson was the last person to see Merlin the evening she died. And he was the first to arrive on the scene and see her body when Eunice Murray called him late that night. And, you know, there are many crazy conspiracy theories out there. And this is one of them. There was a speeding car that was stopped in Beverly Hills just after midnight on August 4. And it turned out that Bobby Kennedy, his brother-in-law Peter Lawford, and Dr. Ralph Grierson were inside. Now, I don't know about that. We do know Marilyn. I mean, it is widely accepted that she had an affair uh, with JFK and Bobby Kennedy, who was attorney general at the time. But I'm about 300% sure that the Kennedys didn't kill her. Uh, the most I'm willing to entertain, for argument's sake only, is that if Bobby Kennedy was with her that night, they maybe had sex, then wanted to take a nap or sleep through the night together, and she took some pills to fall asleep because she couldn't sleep, as we know, she had major trouble sleeping at night. I mean, that's the most I'm willing to entertain. Like, if Bobby Kennedy was there, he didn't kill her, they went to bed and because she needed medication to sleep, she took a lot of medication. And when he wakes up, she's dead in bed near him and he panics and gets the hell out of there. And that's I mean, that's the but I don't think he was even there, actually. But that's one of the main theories that's being peddled in all the documentaries. And I think it's total nonsense when we know she had OD'd so many times and had to be brought back to life or, uh, you know, woken up from the semi-coma, comatose state she was in when she was found so many times before after taking tons of medications so she had a history in that way if there is somebody who's really to be found guilty of her death i would say dr greenson is like a prime competitor for that position as far as i know correct me if i'm wrong but there's nothing you know there's nothing really concrete to say that she did not you know, kill herself. Um, oh, no, she, she did. She did. If we accomplish anything in an hour talking about this, I would hope that it's, you know, this is somebody who has been 
failed by and taken advantage of by every person she's ever known outside of a couple of people. So I can't pin it on one guy. He was just the, he just happened to be the last one. If there was another one, the next one would have been taken advantage of her in some way too. So no, and think about it. He made himself endlessly, endlessly available to her and their sessions were lasting for up to five hours every day with telephone calls in between. If anybody is to be held responsible just because he had the responsibility as a medical... Yeah, you're right about that. He said, I mean, he's her last doctor. He does have that responsibility, yes. He was always there. And if he wasn't there, he was on the phone with her. I mean, that sounds like a like a bad controlling husband to me. Like, it's just crazy. The lines... The lines have been crossed. Even if we give them that benefit of the doubt and say this is purely professional on his part, yeah, but you've made your entire professional life about treating one celebrity and you've gotten well past treating and into, you know, controlling and overbearing. So you're not, you know, you're still looking out for yourself at her expense at that point. Yes. For our listeners, if your psychotherapist is is picking your uh, uh, maid, just fired them because <laughs> that's. I'm happy to sit around and talk about Freud with you know with literature professors for four or five hours. That seems like fun. I've done that before in college, but um, I don't need you like talking to my maid. If if you're talking to my if you if you're talking to the <laughs> maid, then I'm going to talk about Freud with somebody else because you're taking it a bit too far. Yeah, no, there there are lines, and that's why I'm, this is this is the gist of it. If uh, there's any question about how this story ends, well, how the story ends is Anna Freud's house was the recipient of 25% of Marilyn Monroe's estate. And they lived off of that money uh, many decades after Marilyn Monroe was dead. Anna Freud, uh, Anna Freud's estate was still surviving. Yes. Off of Marilyn Monroe's likeness. So, yes. yeah, they got they got the money. Yeah. So what we know for a fact is that sometime between 9.30 p.m. and 3 a.m., Marilyn dies. At 3 a.m., Eunice Murray, the maid, uh, wakes up and she feels something is wrong. That's how this is presented. And that's why she wakes up, because she has this weird feeling. I don't know. But she finds Marilyn dead in her bed. Some other reports say that she just saw light in her, the light is still on in her room. So then she went to check in on to check in on Marilyn and she saw her sprawled on the bed. And that's when she calls Dr. Greenson. Why not call 911? This is my question here. Why do you call the psychiatrist? Call 911 if you see her unresponsive. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that uh, famous people instruct their staff that, you know, if you ever have to call somebody from me because of some medical emergency, don't call 911 and get, you know, my lawn that means full the of press. Yeah. yeah, my lawn's going to be full of reporters. So don't call this guy. Don't call the police. I would say that's normal. Yeah, so that's yeah. a very good point. At 3.15 a.m., Ralph Greenson arrives at Marilyn's house and breaks in Marilyn's room. He realizes she's dead. At 3.30 a.m., Hyman Engelberg arrives at Marilyn's house and declares her dead. Engelberg is her physician. 
At 4.25 a.m., and that's almost an hour later, Dr. Engelbert calls the police and they arrive at Merlin's house. It is speculated that the time between doctors arriving and police being called was used to dispose probably of medication that had been prescribed in a cleanup to protect uh, especially Engelberg, who apparently had uh, prescribed about 900 pills to Merlin in the past two months. Wow, that's a lot. According to the autopsy report, Merlin had ingested a large amount of barbiturates. The amount of pills in her system was enough to kill an average person a few times over. And in order to wean Merlin of Nembutal, her doctors had her taking chlorohydrate, which had similar properties to Nembutal, but was not as addictive, I think. So this is not new. Yeah, we were talking about this before we uh, started recording this episode, that the string of celebrities in the past couple of years, like Prince and Tom Petty and Michael Jackson, that after they died, we find out that their doctors have given them this obscene amounts of pills. And again, I mean, you know, people, what are you going to say? People want to go see, you know, the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, run around on stage like Mick Jagger's still 25, but he's 75. He's not 25. And how do you do that? Well, you're going to need some pills. So I don't think that's, you know, that's not, (laughs) That's not unique to her situation. It still goes on. Yes, uh, and it's something that probably most celebrities go through at some point or another. There's no way when you have so many doctors and you have to perform on a regular basis and a certain standard, and that takes a lot of energies, work and stuff. So you're going to need some chemicals to keep you going. And then once that's the catch is once you've taken all those to keep you going, then you need some more to go to sleep at night. And it yeah, sounds like, down, yeah. yeah, you need some more to go to sleep at night. And that sounds like, you know, what you eventually need- was the end of Marilyn Monroe here is the other handful of pills to go to sleep that night. Yes. And the other handful every morning get you going again and so on. It's a vicious circle. It never ends. I'll give you my conspiracy theory. It's not as crazy as some of my <laughs> others. You can rest easy. So okay. <laughs> you don't have to be afraid of what I, I, was... do, I don't, though. Let's, <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> and in the interest of a uh, little diversity and inclusion, I'm going to give the Wall Street Journal the last citation here. They have a pretty good article on Freud's visit to America. Uh, the article is titled uh, 100 Years of Freud in America. And just to be clear, Freud was not happy about coming to America at all, ever. Freud hated America from the time he got here. But he suffered from the runaway inflation in Germany after World War I, uh, just like everybody else in Germany had. So he found himself needing to come to America and trade on his fame and his name in Europe to make money. This is really, I think, the takeaway from all of this stuff. You can, you can pin this on everybody that Marilyn Monroe dealt with, except Joe DiMaggio, which mentioned a couple of times, was her only true friend in some of these later issues that she had to deal with. Freud described America as a place that had channeled its sexuality into an unhealthy obsession with money. And... He despised having to come here to get money. His direct quote is that we are materially dependent on these savages who are not a better class of human than we are. And he described his trip as 
to, again, stroke his ego a bit. He knew he was going to be popular in America, and he said, we're bringing them the plague, and they don't even know it. He was bringing some truth that would cause Americans to look in the mirror and hate themselves, and they didn't realize what they were getting into, uh, which is you know, giving himself a bit too much credit, I think. At the end of the day, all of these people were in this for the money. It's very ridiculous to convince yourself that you are doing something on behalf of a medical patient or doing something on behalf of American idealism in the case of his nephew orchestrating the Guatemalan coup with the CIA for the United Fruit Company when they're not... This is not for ideology. This is not for the patient. This is not for the betterment of mankind. Everybody's in this for the money. Exactly. And we're going to have to make an episode about uh, his nephew, Bernays. Uh, yeah, his nephew is worth a whole nother episode in itself. And the perfect cherry on the top of this is in 2010, the Anna Freud Foundation... Uh, which is basically the estate of the Freuds. This is reading a headline from their own you know, situation here. Anna Freud Center, funded by Marilyn Monroe, suffers financial losses. And it's a story about how since finally losing out in a decades-long court battle over keeping their share of the Marilyn Monroe estate, which has funded them all this time, the Anna Freud Center is going to have to find a new way to make money because finally, in 2010, their share of the estate of Marilyn Monroe was taken from them. And good. That was the only income they had. So, well, I'll give them that. They were right that Marilyn Monroe was their ticket to uh, to wherever they were going. That much is true because they were still cashing in that ticket in 2010. And when that ticket was taken away, they didn't have another one to fall back on. Like I said before, this, this notion of individuals only need to be shown how they're supposed to behave and they'll fix their own brains and sort their own lives out. Uh, it's a very 17th century idealistic ideology, and it's surely not going to work if it's built upon a foundation of Everybody only does what they do for the money. I agree. And I actually have a, a quote of hers that ties in with that, I think, pretty well. She said, being a sex symbol is a heavy load to carry, especially when one is tired, hurt and bewildered. Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. If I close my eyes and think of Hollywood, all I see is one big varicose vein. And yeah. Uh, you gave me like uh, that's that's pretty well put for somebody who's uh, crazy and not capable of taking care of themselves. Right, right, yeah, isn't that true? And you know, this is such a sad story again because she could have been, she could have been alive for much longer, and she could have ended up having a family and dying of old age in her home, happy. And I think that could have been maybe achieved if the people surrounding her weren't like vultures. Yeah, and I mean, to give her a little bit of responsibility for the outcome of her own life, I suppose. You know, if she had realized earlier that, 
You know, all these people who tell you that you should want to be a housewife in the suburbs or tell you that you should want to be a movie star or tell you that you should want to have this or you should want to have that. At the end of the day, what you should want is the check and then move to Grand Cayman and never return their phone calls again. Because everybody at the end, you know, they're in it for the money. And if you're in it for the money, too. You, at that point, you're on equal footing. Take the money, go home, and never come back. That's the only way that you can deal with the people that she was dealing with, unfortunately. And uh, she did not do that. And so she was ultimately uh, trying to achieve an impossible goal. You're going to find closure for your childhood trauma and uh, happiness with somebody that you're married to and maybe children or maybe not. And, you know, professional success for your artistic talent. No, America doesn't do those things. America does the check that you can get. So. Yeah, but at what cost? That's the question. And that's I think that's the whole gist of the whole situation that we have here. You know, it's at least I'm happy that she had DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio in her life. Um, he was the one who organized her funeral and he refused to invite the Hollywood elite and so on. He only wanted the close friends that she had there, which I completely agree with. And she uh, sent her red roses three times a week for 20 years until his death. She sent those to her. Yeah. Court. So he was... He, and he, you, I saw images and footage from the funeral just from a, a distance. Joe DiMaggio, he was, he was shattered. You could see. I think he was the only one who really, truly, really cared about yeah, Marilyn. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think what I would like people to really take away from this and remember is that Merlin was not just the blonde bombshell as portrayed by most of her characters she played. She was a wonderful, em empathetic, kind human being. She was very well read. She was an intelligent woman. She had a rare combination of warmth, innocence, and a certain way of being with people and around people. And in that sense, she and Princess Diana had the same type of wonderful personality which made them so well loved by people it's not only that she was beautiful and glamorous there was so much more to her and she was an amazing actress and probably if given the chance i mean we all know she's famous and for good reason but i think she would have done so many more wonderful films in her career if she if she wouldn't have passed away of course and I saw the, there are some post-mortem photos released by the coroner's office and she, in those photos she looked like a little girl, like a child. And that's what shocked me, the vulnerability. She looked like, like a little girl. That's, and I think that's what she was her entire life. She was that little girl and she never got the love and the happiness and the family life she wanted and she always looked for you know, acceptance from people and she was kind to everybody. And unfortunately, those around her didn't return the favor. And this episode, as usual, we are recommending a great book by renowned author and feminist activist Gloria Steinem. It's one of the best books about Marilyn Monroe. And really, it is a must read if you're interested in the subject like we are. The book is titled Marilyn 
Norma Jean. It's so well written and it covers the same topics we discuss in this episode, but in longer, more detailed form and intermixed with iconic photos from the most prolific photographer of Marilyn Monroe, George Barris. Also, he's the one who took the last picture of Marilyn Monroe before she died. And no, we have no deal or monetary incentive to recommend books each episode. We just tell you guys about the books we really, truly like. So, Marilyn Norma Jean by Gloria Steinem. That's it. That's our book recommendation for this episode. It's difficult to tie all these things together, but they are nonetheless tied together. I mean, these, you know, the Freuds and Marilyn Monroe and the the industry of psychiatry and psychoanalysis at that time and the entire American film industry are all intertwined and inseparable, really. Yes. And there's one other thing. If you're a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, asks you to meet outside the office, then like it's a big no, because that's what happens. With what Marilyn. about if your like, therapist suggests that your problem is you are horny because you smell the smoke in his beard. <laughs> I mean, come on, Freud, you got to rag on America when you wrote that in 1890. I think Dora's got some criticism for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dora was upset. Dora fired him in the intro. <laughs> Marilyn should have done what Dora did. Exactly. <laughs> with Dr. Greenson. Yeah. That's that's the gist of it. And if you like this episode, guys, we suggest listening to our other episodes, which are extremely interesting as well, and following us on our social media channels at DubiousPod on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. And even TikTok. <laughs> and not only that, but since you now have the psychoanalytical skills that a whole hour of hearing completely unqualified people talk about Freud can give you, you should post a review as well. <laughs>